Dwight Lyman Moody was born on February 5th, 1837. I've illustrated from his life in the past. He would serve as an, as an evangelist and as an um, educator, although uneducated himself, in fact, mocked most of his speaking career for the way that he slaughtered, they said, the king's English. If you read anything he's written, his grammar was horrible, but he was magnificently used by the Lord and was committed to education. The most notable of all the schools he started is Moody Bible Institute, and we have students in our fellowship who have received their education there. It's been serving now for 150 years. His, his desire as a young evangelist was to reach the street kids of Chicago originally and, and uh, developed a Sunday school program with these children and uh, their parents that attended. The only place they could meet was in a saloon. How's that for a great place to start a church? Nearly a 1,000 uh, eventually attended. In fact, it made such a national impact that Abraham Lincoln once visited it for himself. The ministry eventually landed on uh, Illinois Street in a church, and his associate, Moody's associate, began pastoring that church, and Moody was used extensively around the world in evangelism crusades. It eventually um, moved to the corner of LaSalle and Chicago Avenue, where it has been delivering the truth now for, uh, in its entire history, 150 years. Its current pastor, Erwin Lutzer, is a friend of our church. In fact, will be with us this summer, again, in our summer series. There's an important series of events, however, that established a high level of accountability in the life of Dio Moody, going back to the time of his conversion that is often missed, and I want to use it as an illustration today as we prepare for this table. So let me back up a bit. D.L. Moody was born to a large family. His father was a stonemason and unfortunately an alcoholic. He died at the age of 41 when Dwight was only four years old. His mother would raise Dwight and seven brothers and sisters, among them a set of twins born one month after the death of Mr. Moody. So you can only imagine the difficulty and the hardship Mrs. Moody faced. By the way, a sidebar here, if you're wondering if God could ever use you in some way, small or great, it doesn't really matter, but just that he'd use you, and maybe you're doubting it because you don't have that long line of, you know, that legacy, all those believers, you know, in your family tree. Take heart, Dwight L. Moody began his legacy. In fact, his mother wasn't a believer. She did make sure that they all went to church. The trouble was it was a universalist church that denied the deity of Christ, and I'm not sure if she ever came to faith in the Lord. But she did struggle to support her family, ended up having to send several of them to nearby places where they could work for room and board. D.L. Moody was one of them. Dwight complained to his mother that they only fed him cornmeal and milk. And she asked, uh, do you have enough to eat? And he said, yes. And so she said, well, that's where you're to stay and continue working. When Dwight turned 17, He moved to Boston to work in his uncle's uh, shoe store. His uncle had the requirement that everyone under his roof attended church on the Lord's Day. That church was the Congregational Church of Mount Vernon. It happened to be a Bible-believing and preaching church led by an evangelical pastor who had spent several years in evangelism. And so he delivered the truth. In fact, we would call it hellfire and brimstone in in our uh, day uh, today. That laid the groundwork for a visit from Dwight's own Sunday school teacher, many of you have heard about, Mr. Kimball, who came and delivered to him the gospel again personally. And there in that shoe shop, Dwight L. Moody accepted Christ. 
He applied to membership in this congregational church, and their practice was to have an interview, and uh, he was, after that interview, rejected as a candidate for membership. Can you imagine a church rejecting somebody as a candidate for membership, even though they can confess Christ as Savior? It's interesting how things have changed, but they wanted to make sure that they were fulfilling Matthew 28, which is not to make converts, but to make what? Disciples. And they wanted to make sure that every member was growing in Christ. And so uh, he interviewed, they, they failed him. Uh, but it wasn't a discouraging, cold, harsh failure. It was kind. It was instructive. In fact, uh, the records of the church, and I found them online, by the way, as I researched this, in May of 1855, as he applied and was rejected from membership, Mr. Kimball, his own Sunday school teacher who led him to Christ, recorded these words, and I quote, I can truly say, and in saying it, I magnify the infinite grace of God in his life, speaking of Dwight, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the membership committee of Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. The church record stated that Moody was rejected because his knowledge of the Bible was insufficient. But that didn't stop him, nor did they intend it to stop him. He began reading... He began studying with the help of Mr. Kimball and others. He became accountable to him and others to learn what he needed to know to make his public profession of faith in Christ clear and resolute and biblical, and then his baptism and following that church membership. Now let me just stop for a moment because I find a number of things fascinating about this. This church, among other observations, evidently was more interested in spiritual development than the growth or expansion of their membership role. Not like America where you join and you're there for life. Even after you die, you could vote in most Baptist churches. The second thing that came to my mind was, was their obvious and rather concerted effort to make sure their members had this understanding of basic principles of Christianity. It also struck me that identifying with this assembly was considered an accomplishment and even a privilege for growing, dedicated believers. And it also struck me that that these membership standards of basic biblical knowledge did not discourage new believers, nor was that the intention, but it provoked them into growing and learning. It reinforced it and held them accountable to it. Ultimately, there was spiritual protection from the assembly, for the assembly, from error, and there was protection for Moody as he grew in his understanding of the gospel. Moody dedicated himself to reading the Bible, learning the basic truths, and a year later, he was allowed to reapply for membership. May 3rd, 1856, after a time of questions and answers by the membership committee, Dwight Lyman Moody was accepted into the membership of the church and uh, around the same time baptized. It took him one year to become a member of a church where he wanted to join. And I couldn't think, I couldn't help but think of us. You know, we require 13 weeks, 13 sessions of biblical instruction before a person can join our church. I don't know, maybe that's a bit quick. (laughs) 
Maybe that's a little fast. I couldn't help but think, especially for the average church in our own country, how far we've come in the wrong direction. I brought along with me a very unique object. In fact, what I've learned about Moody, I've been picking up here over the last few weeks, some of this. And this happened to come across my attention. One of the elders in our church told me about it. It came out of the 16th century Reformation, the practice of it. It was developed extensively in Scotland by evangelical churches, primarily the Presbyterian church. This happens to be a communion token. They were, they were crafted by the local blacksmith and made from a variety of materials. It wasn't that these were expensive. It's just whatever they had available. And the, the wealth of the church could determine whether it was made of brass. And the one I'm holding happens to be made of lead, which was the common element used in the 1800s. It would be stamped by the local blacksmith. And I was able to see pictures of the blacksmith's shop in this mountain region from which this token was stamped. In fact, they're still using it for um, that particular uh, industry. The size and shape of tokens varied quite a bit. It really didn't matter. What mattered was you had one. That's what mattered. Now, the one I'm holding was stamped and crafted by a blacksmith in the year 1814, which would have been 23 years before the birth of Deal Moody. This uh, particular token comes from the Convith Parish, which happened to be, and I had to do the research, it, it's in the northeastern section of Scotland. On one side are the words stamped around the edge, token for the parish of Convith. This was located in the mountains of, of uh, Aberdeenshire. Then in the middle of the coin, you can make out just a little bit of the pastor's name, Dr. George Cook, comma, M-I-N, minister. And there you can see the date fairly well, 1814. So what that tells us is that this church had these tokens stamped for that year. They only did them a year at a time. 1814, it was given to members in good standing who could then come to partake in communion. Now, you came and you, you handed this over and then it, the church melted them down and restamped new ones for the next year. Oftentimes, I learned that tokens could be stamped uh, with the number of the table where the member would sit. Typically, included a meal, and then they would take a portion of it, set it aside, and then remember Christ through the elements of unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine. And so uh, they would often stamp, just to handle the crowd, the number of the table. Larger churches had a number of tables, and so you'd get your token. It would have stamp table number 12, and you would find that table and sit there. And the reason they had to manage the crowd was because... Communion Sunday was the best attended service in this uh, region, in Scotland. This wasn't something that sent people away. It's, it was something that encouraged and challenged them to make sure they could attend. And so there would be a stamp of a table, typically on the token, where a, that person would be able to sit as they remembered the Lord in his death and sacrifice on their behalf. 
We have that custom, by the way, that language, that idea, as we refer to this even today as the Lord's table. Uh, we're, we're pictured as a church body, symbolically coming to a table and eating the elements there that reflect the death, the giving of the Lord's body and blood on our behalf. And so we emphasize that. Now on the other side of this coin are the words stamped that are fairly, a little bit easier to read. All it says is, do this in remembrance of me. That's taken from Luke chapter 22, verse 19, where the Lord instructed his disciples as he set apart this memorial of his body and blood on that occasion in the upper room. Now, just as D.L. Moody could not join his church without personally demonstrating uh, some knowledge of biblical truth, uh, around that same time that Moody was growing up in America, believers in Scotland could not partake of communion without being interviewed personally. I researched the aspects of these interviews. And by the way, the annual communion service actually lasted two or three days. It was sort of the high event of the church. And, and the reason it lasted so long, there would be preaching and eating together and fellowshipping, and it would be climaxed by the partaking of the Lord's table. The reason it took two or three days, some shorter, some longer, was it would be during that particular time that every member would be interviewed by the elders of the church. They were all interviewed to show, and I quote, in fact, from uh, this particular church uh, where this uh, token was stamped. The members would be examined, quote, for their faith, their Christian knowledge, and scripture memorization was a requirement. If the individual then demonstrated they were walking with Christ, they were learning the truths and doctrines of Scripture, they were memorizing verses or passages of Scripture, they were given this coveted token and allowed to participate in the prized event, the celebration of the Lord's table. Now you know where I'm going to go with this? We're going to start passing out, no, no, we're not going to pass out tokens. Uh, just relax. But I do want to take time as we approach this table for us all to consider how well we would be received in 1814 at the communion service in that particular church in Conveth, pastored by George Cook. I want you to try to imagine your name being called. It would be your turn for an interview. Imagine going into some room set aside there in that simple church building located in the windy mountain gap of Aberdeenshire, Scotland. If you had a hat, you'd probably be fidgeting with it. You'd smooth the wrinkles out of your dress. And the questions would begin. How do you think you'd do? I've asked myself that question. In fact, uh, from the research that I had, I've just composed several questions that they would have been asked. Consider these. Have you grown this year in basic Bible understanding? Can you tell us what you've learned? Can you recite the basic elements of the gospel? How much of the Bible have you read this year? What is your practice of reading what have you read this week? Have you memorized verses of Scripture or a chapter or a book this past year? Have you ever memorized a verse of Scripture? 
Do you have the books of the Bible memorized so you can find your way and follow along in the assembly? Do you know where your Bible is? Can you find the Ten Commandments in your Bible or the Sermon on the Mount? Did you participate in some kind of activity this past year in ministry, personally or with the assembly? It didn't have to be something grand, but something simple. Something that contributed to the Lord's body and ministry. D.L. Moody, in fact, said on one occasion as I was researching his life a little bit more, he said this. He said, there are many Christians who will do great things for God, but not very many who will do little things for God. Have you done anything little this year? Is there someone you've prayed for this past year? Did you let them know? Do you take time to pray beyond the blessing at mealtime? One more. Have you read any Christian books of substance that develop doctrinal truth or understanding or insight? What are you reading? What have you read this past year? I've asked this question before. Let me state it again. If you were arrested for being a Christian and brought to trial, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know what was happening? In this mountain pass of Aberdeenshire in the year 1814, the leadership of the church asked one another and then every member of the flock for the evidence. The evidence. Evidences of growth. Evidences of faith, evidences for a desire of things for Christ, evidences of true repentance and having failed. All of that is part of the believer's life, isn't it? They were coming to the table to remember Christ. The question was, had they remembered him at any point in the prior year? Would they get a token? I wonder... Would we be here today if a token were required upon passing an examination? I don't think it'd fly in America. If somebody didn't pass the test, they'd probably sue the church for emotional distress and get a free lifetime token from that point forward. Now, there is a problem. Obviously, you can lie to an elder. You can lie to a pastor. You can lie to each other, right? It, it, it was probably... Possible, if not likely, that somebody pulled the wool over George Cook's eyes. That's why I think it's interesting that the Apostle Paul prepares us to approach this table by telling us to examine ourselves before the Lord. This is an individual examination for the evidences of genuine faith, progress, development, confession, repentance, rededication. That's why God gave us this table through His Son Christ. Do this so you make sure you're remembering me. And whenever you come, you ask the question, have I remembered him at all between the last time and this time? So Paul would write to that church in Corinth to examine themselves, to judge themselves. Crino is the word. To make sure they hold themselves before the court. They are judge and jury. And before the Lord, and you can lie to him too, but... You know you're lying, and you know he knows you're lying. That's really the highest form of accountability. You 
before your Lord. I imagine there were a few tears in Corinth and Conveth. Maybe Carrie. As every year the believers submitted to the accountability of the spiritual examination there in Conveth, you know, I think they had it right. In this way, they understood that you do not approach this table without transparency and honesty and confession. This table calls for it. It calls for accountability. It calls for integrity. It calls for transparency. It calls for confession. It, it leads us to rededication, does it not? It, it ought to cause us to rededicate ourselves to learning Reading, studying, memorizing, praying, testifying, serving, to name a few. We don't pass out tokens, but we all do want the blessing of God, do we not? We want then to openly evaluate our lives and confess our sin and commit our hearts, especially here, to the glory and the pleasure of our Lord, whom we are Remembering. Would you bow your heads and prepare to go before the Lord in quiet contemplation and evaluation? I want to re-read through this just to provoke your thinking again. These questions that would have been asked to the believers. And by the way, in, in Conveth, these were farmers and herdsmen. They didn't have Lifeway down the street or a Christian library around the corner. The challenges they faced to grow and to read and to study were greater than ours, but they were still asked the questions. So let me go through them. And as I go through them, maybe one of them, the Spirit of God will say, we need to stop there, and then you just talk to the Lord as you examine yourself. Is there an area where you have been challenged in basic Bible understanding and you've come to understand some things this year? Can you recite the basic elements of the gospel? Do you know what they are? If someone asked. Have you read your Bible this past year? What is your practice of reading this past month, this past week? Have you memorized anything from God's Word? Do you have the books of the Bible memorized so you can find your way and follow along? Do you know where to find the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount? Or other, what we call classic passages that are good to read and reread with those who have questions. Have you participated in some kind of ministry activity this past year? Do you know where your Bible is? D.L. Moody said it clearly, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. So which direction are you heading? Is there someone you've prayed for this past year? Did you let them know? Do you pray beyond the blessing at mealtime? What are you reading? Have you read anything of substance that would develop biblical or doctrinal truths or insight into the Scripture. 
would you get a token? Father, this table is to be approached with all seriousness and self-examination for the purpose of progress. Progress that follows confession and repentance, fresh decisions to pursue the the disciplines of our uh, Christian relationship and personal lives and associations with the local assembly and, and more. I wonder, Lord, if if our church would be filled to capacity on that weekend of the communion service. We would pray it so. I know you're working in every heart here today, and Father, I don't know where every person is. and, And so as they examine themselves before you, we also thank you for your grace and this body and blood of our Lord that was given sacrificed for sinners, for failures, for the undisciplined, for the new believer, for the older saints alike. We thank you that we can come to this table even now with a mixture of dissatisfaction with where we are because a a devotion like this leaves us all dissatisfied without any question. Every one of us, Father. But that is mixed with your satisfaction through Christ who died on our behalf. Nearly 200 years after some assembly met somewhere in that windy mountain pass in Aberdeenshire, you've called us together. Do a work in our hearts, in our lives, in our assembly through our testimony. For your sake we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have had to come to this table. We thank you, Spirit of God, for your kind and gracious, yet firm and bound to truth gaze. We are better for it. May our commitment that comes from the remembering of you, Lord Jesus, in our own lives, in our own private lives, in our public lives, our family lives, our work ethic, our our ministry, our activity resound together to even greater glory for your sake, not for ours, but for yours alone. Thank you for giving us a memorial that is a moment of rededication in every believer's life. For those here today that do not know you that had to pass this by, We pray together as an assembly for them 
that they would heed the invitation and the words, whosoever will may come. Maybe for them it would be today. We have no excuses. So strengthen us, we pray, to take steps forward this year, demonstrating the evidences of our relationship with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.